Welcome to Now Appalachian, hosted by author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. This show profiles the authors and publishers that have connections to the Appalachian region and how those connections influence and impact their works. And now, Appalachia. And hello, friends, and we welcome you to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us as, once again, we continue to profile the authors and publishers from the Appalachian region and those that have a connection to the Appalachian region, either from their uh, places that they've lived or the writings that they are composing and the subjects that they are composing and writing about and those connections to Appalachia. And we have an outstanding author with us once again here today on this episode of Now Appalachia, who's got a fantastic book that I would encourage all of you to check out and read. And the title of that book is The Last Taxi Driver. And our author joining us today to talk to us about that book, as well as his career as a writer, is Lee Durkee. And Lee joins us today uh, as a former taxi driver himself. He's the author of the novel Rides of the Midway, and his stories and essays have appeared in Harper's Magazine, The Sun, Best of the Oxford American, Zoe Trope, All Story, Tin House, New England Review, and others. And in 2021, his memoir, Stalking Shakespeare, which chronicles his decade-long obsession with trying to find lost portraits of William Shakespeare, will be released. He lives in northern Mississippi, and we're delighted to have him as our guest today here on Now Appalachia to talk to us about his fantastic new novel, The Last Taxi Driver. So, Lee, welcome to Now Appalachia. It's great to have you here. Oh, thanks so much, Elliot. Um, I will try to live up to the billing. Thank you for that introduction. That was very kind. My pleasure, my pleasure. So I wanted to ask you first before we start talking about your book, as we mentioned in your introduction and in your bio, you're a former cab driver. So how did you become a cab driver and how long were you a cab driver and what was that experience like? I became a cab driver kind of by default. I was a bartender forever and then I started having back trouble um, and hearing trouble. And I became this pathetic figure, which is a deaf bartender with back spasms. And I finally got fired from a bartending job. That had never happened before. And so the last resort of a scoundrel, I became a 101 teacher for a couple of semesters and um, really didn't feel at home doing that anymore. And it really depressed me. Um, and on impulse, I quit and called a friend and just told her what's going to become of me. I need help. And she had done some legal work for a cab company. And she said, maybe I can get you on a cab company. And I said, yes, please. I would, you know, anything, any port in a storm. And so I started driving for one company. I drove that company, drove for that company a year. But I wasn't allowed to drive at nights where you made more money because I kept getting an argument with the uh, drunk frat boys at night. So I was relegated to the day shift only, which is a different world. It's usually mostly you're picking up people and taking them to work, which translates into a lot of stress because if you're late, they're late and they get fired. So it's a very different world of regulars. You drive 70, 60 hours a week. Your regulars really are your closest intimate relationships at that point. Uh, and um, you get to know everybody and you really feel like you're serving the community but you don't make much money in day shifts. So eventually I had to quit that company and drive for another company to let me work night shifts again. That was a disaster, in the, but I saved enough money to get my own car, at which point I stabbed the taxi industry in the back and started driving for Uber. But I was an independent contractor the whole time. So I was kind of getting equally screwed over 
by the cab companies and then a little screwed over a little bit more by Uber. Um, the analogy I like to make with Uber is that it's worse than sharecropping. Share, in sharecropping, the landowner provides half, provides everything, farm equipment, seeds, etc., and takes half at harvest to half the profit. Cab company does the same thing. You get a car, you have to drive 60, 70 hours a week, but they supply the car, they supply the insurance, and at the end of the week, they take half of the drop. With Uber, they supply nothing, and they take quite often over half of the drop. So it's very frustrating to work for them because after a while you do a little math and you figure things out and you think, oh, I'm being paid via, via, via vehicle uh, depreciation. And I think a lot of people driving for Uber are not being paid at all and just don't realize it. So uh, you know, Uber is the worst of the lot. As bad as the independent contractor taxi industry is, Uber is a step backwards. And your novel, The Last Taxi Driver, follows a day in the life of a driver named Lou. And you were talking about taxi companies just a moment ago and some of the problems that you've had uh, with them and mentioned Uber as well. This company that Lou drives for, called the All Saints Cab Company, is really interesting in and of themselves because they target their services to a specific clientele. Can you tell us a little bit about this All Saints Cab Company that Lou is working for and kind of what their specific demographic is in terms of customers, because I think that's where a lot of the great storytelling in your novel comes from is these people that the cab company is looking for. Yeah. Um, I guess every cab, every city has one cab company like the one in my book that will go anywhere. A lot of cab companies choose not to go into certain areas. Um, All Saints, it goes through the projects. It goes down the dirt roads to the trailer parks it goes wherever people really don't have credit cards. They don't have bank accounts. You know, those are the people that are calling cabs. And it also, All Saints also goes to the nearby campus too and has to deal with that polar opposite world of extreme poverty and then extreme privilege. Um, and because of that, it the characters are very opposed to each other quite frequently. One one character can be quite different from another, but I guess if you're looking for a motif, it's uh, the down and out people are in the cab, All Saints. And All Saints also has a contract with the local hospital. So then when somebody's kicked out of the hospital for not being able to pay, the hospital calls us, All Saints, and we take them to wherever they live in Mississippi. And we charge them mileage both ways, which is illegal. Um, and um, Eventually, I think the taxpayers pick up the bill. Um, but you have these deathbed runs where you realize this is the last time this person's going to be in a car, probably. Um, and you leave them in the strangest places. Quite often, you leave them alone. You know, I've left people alone in, tr in trailers without electricity. Um, or you take them to places you're a little scared of sometimes, you know, late in the evening or at night. Um, so it's a, it was a fascinating job. And, um, and, you know, that I'm kind of getting the real life and the book life mixed up a little here and talking about it. And that might be telling, but there is some overlap on that. Very good. And 
I love some of the characters that we meet uh, in your book. And I like how that e each one of your stories that we see kind of carrying over from the chapter almost is like a vignette. Uh, and all those vignettes kind of tie together to give us a tapestry of what a day in Lou's life is like. But I just wanted to, to mention a couple of these characters because I think they're so great. Lou's got a poet girlfriend who literally never gets out of bed. Uh, he's got his boss's son who he doesn't really like all that well. Uh, is recently back in the picture, and he's had to wear an ankle monitor. That's been cut off now, or the, the boss's son's cut off the ankle monitor. He picks up a group of meth addicts earlier in the day and then finds out later that one of the husbands uh, of one of those, those people that he picked up is stalking them uh, or stalking one of the group there. Uh, th this is just a collection of some of the most interesting people uh, that Lou just kind of meets happenstance because they're the ones that need a ride and he's at, there at the right time, sort of right place at the right time. Uh, but I think this is also so representative of society and, and there's so many different samples uh, of people that you could run into in society and Lou kind of encounters them all through the day. So I wanted to ask you, uh, who, was, who was your favorite to create um, or maybe who was the most challenging sort of cab rider that Lou deals with to, to create. You could take either one of those or both of those. Who was easiest, your favorite, and who was the most difficult to kind of structure a story around? Um, I think my favorite character or passenger in the book um, is the sex addict woman who escapes from the drug rehab. And, um, and Lou has to drive her all the way to Memphis. And um, they have, she was just, as a character for me, she was, she spoke instantly. You know, I didn't have to struggle or anything to, 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 to imagine her. And she was funny. She was kind of funnier than me. I felt like if you can actually invent a character who is funnier than you. And I liked the tension between them in the drive too, to Memphis. You know, if, if you have a, somebody who announces themselves as a sex addict in your car, there's a certain tension that follows that. And, um, and hopefully the dialogue picks up on that and they discuss things like Graceland and uh, Tiger Woods, who Tiger Woods was also a fellow sex addict who ended up in my hometown of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Um, and um, so he comes up in the conversation. But um, yeah, so, so she's my favorite character and she's towards the end of the book. But, um, you know, once again, some of these characters have template people, template passengers from my real life who they somewhat remind me of. So it's hard to, sometimes I get them mixed up in my mind. Lee Durkee is our guest here on Now Appalachia. We're talking to him about his latest novel, The Last Taxi Driver. And we've been talking to him a little bit about what goes on in the story and how the story has been constructed so far. And Lee, we'll come back to the book in just a second. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about process and, and putting a story like this together. I understand it took you a while to write this novel. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some of the challenges and struggles that you had uh, in putting this novel together and where you really felt like uh, you had to maybe slow down a little bit or do some deep revision or uh, so some deep editing in some ways to get the story the way that you wanted. Where, do, where did that happen in the process of putting your book together? Hmm. Well, the book for me was actually written pretty quickly, but only because I was working so hard at it. I, I had been driving and driving and driving and I had all this, um, you know, these experiences and I didn't want, I was desperately afraid I was going to forget them. So when I finally got time to write, I, I just spent days, you know, seven, eight, nine hours a day in front of the uh, keyboard. Um, 
Originally, I started off as a novel, but I had just got a new agent, and he had read one of my other novels, which I don't think was particularly good. And I, you know, he didn't seem anxious to go with that, and he wanted to see something else. And he encouraged me to try to make it a memoir. And so it went through many drafts as a memoir, um, but I was never happy with him, and I didn't like the constraints of the memoir. But um, it, we kept working on it on the, as a memoir for months and months. And, um, and we had some success with it, but in the end, pulled the brakes on that and just went back on impulse to it being a novel. And um, luckily, I got a chapter of it picked up in the Sun magazine at some point. And um, they were kind enough to publish it, and that set things going as well. For, and um, so after you know, so many years of not publishing anything, 20 years, um, it, suddenly things were going quickly. And um, the book wasn't difficult to write. It was just, you know, hard to find it, hard to define it as a novel, hard to make it not a memoir, I guess. There was a lot of pressure to make it a memoir. And uh, once I had the green light to make it a novel, it was just fun to write. So when you, when you decided to, to put this book together, you mentioned that it was going to come, you thought it was going to start out as a memoir, and eventually it made its way into a novel. Um, how long did it take you from idea conception that you wanted to put this together in a book uh, to sort of a, a polished draft that you felt like was ready to, to move on? What was, what was your timeline like? How many months passed? Uh, what was that process like? From beginning to end? Yes. I would say maybe a year, you know, and, and which is remarkably fast for me, fast for me now that I think about it. Um, usually I'll put stuff aside for a year and come back to it just to get a better perspective on it. So to not do that is, is unusual, but it was a different process for me because I was working with my agent, Dan, and his um, assistant, Andriana, who were giving me fantastic feedback the whole time. So, I mean, I don't, I, when they were urging me to make it into a memoir, it was still, I was still getting great advice from them the whole time. And when we, and when we changed it back into a novel, you know, I continued to get really great advice from them. So it was more of a collaboration than I've ever worked on before. And, um, and I'm sure that improved it and shortened the writing process, but it wasn't much more than a year. Very good. Lee Durkee is our guest here on this episode of Now Appalachia. We've been talking to him about uh, his writing career and his outstanding new novel, The Last Taxi Driver. Lee, let's go back to your book for just a second. I wanted to ask you about one particular chapter that was my personal favorite, and it was the chapter that I just found myself laughing out loud upon. And that was the chapter where we get driving advice from Lou as he has been a taxi driver and he's done a lot of driving. So I had one quote that I highlighted that, um, reminds me of what I see as a driver when I'm driving around and that I've heard uh, advice being given to me and to others about driving. And Lou mentions this, and I just wanted you to kind of give us some context behind this because when I came across this quote, uh, it just really, really made me laugh. And Lou says at one point in that chapter, don't take selfies at red lights. It makes you look like a super freak and is so dispiriting for others to behold that it shatters their view of God and humanity and makes them desire an alien invasion. Tell us a little bit about that quote, and what on earth is Lou referencing when he mentions that in that chapter? Oh, it was just something I saw once, and, just, and it dispirited me. I think we've all seen it, but um, 
um, you know, if you're a driver, you're terrified of the people driving around with their cell phones, you know, interacting anyway, because they're all trying to kill you on some level. Um, but um, in terms of the of the whole chapter, um, it was a late addition to the book. Um, and I was trying to find a way to divide the book up into two parts without having part one and part two. And I, I struck upon that idea because I've been collecting all these driving tips a whole time for the two years I've been a, a cabbie. And um, so that came once I, you know, I had them jotted down one place or another and that all came out very quickly. I bet I wrote that chapter in a day or two or three. And um, I figured also that, you know, if a hundred people read the book, I'll probably at least save one life because there actually are good driving tips inside it, even though it's supposed to be funny. And, you know, the one you, the example you gave wasn't a practical one, you know, in terms of making you a better driver, but um, it, it, it does foreshow, foreshadow the idea of the alien invasion Lou is subconsciously afraid of being a, uh, a fan of UFOs and a, a bit obsessed by them. Yeah, it was, it also, was a Oh, go ahead. And also another one of his rules was never blink your headlights at a UFO, because as a reader of this material, he knows that if you ever do that, the UFO will immediately start to, you know, interact with you and scare the hell out of you. So, um, you know, that's, a, that's another driving tip that probably doesn't get, you know, won't come, <laughs> won't be employed very often. Yeah, because you don't want to end up like an X-File. You don't want to be your own X-File. Right, yeah, exactly. UFOs are cool. You're abducted, I guess. That's right. Yeah, just ask Fox Mulder. Yeah. He can tell you all about that from the X-Files. Very good. And another quote that I highlighted, because I think this, this just connects back to, uh, you know, you having grown up in the South and connections to Appalachia. And I, I love this, and I just would ask you to give us some context behind this. This is something else Lou says about driving in Mississippi. And you and I live in northern Mississippi, so we, we, we may know this better than others. But Lou says, your main job as a driver in Mississippi is to anticipate stupidity. Yeah, you, you really do. And, um, and constantly imagine worst case scenarios. I vowed I did not want to die in a car wreck, you know, and I knew I was increasing the odds phenomenally of dying in a car wreck by driving 70 hour weeks in a cab with, you know, bad brakes, you know, bald tires and no horn. Um, so, um, stupidity is all around us in Mississippi, obviously, but you have to be very specific. And I think the book that goes on to elaborate on that a little bit and says you can also employ methods of doing this, such as just imagine everybody's masturbating furiously in all the other cars or something like that. But um, you have to keep in mind how that car can try to kill you, how, how that pedestrian might, you know, walk in front of you, how, the dog might jump out of the bed of the truck into your vehicle or something. And there's a, and if you do that, you won't die. You know, I really, you know, I are, it's pretty to think so if you're constantly alert um, or maybe I was just lucky, but um, <laughs> I survived it somehow. That's great. Fantastic. And, you know, one of the things I, we've talked a lot about Lou and kind of his, his sayings and the people that he encounters, but, you know, his character is really interesting to me because not only is he funny and he has sort of these quirky 
sayings and thoughts and and you know there's there's moments in the book where uh, he reads a book about the historical Buddha and Buddhism, and that kind of filters into the story. But, you know, when you strip a lot of this back, Lou really is a, a compassionate person. And I, I don't want to give the ending away, but, you know, the book ends and the story, your novel ends with Lou having really probably a terrible day, maybe one of the worst days of his life. Uh, but then again, he's also making a sacrifice to help others. And, and there is... Um, a concern about others and a compassion for others that Lou really seems to have um, in his interactions with people, his concerns for people, his thoughts about people uh, as he has them in the back of his cab and beyond. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Is, is that something you wanted him to have as you set out to develop his character or as you were putting the different vignettes together, it was just something that kind of emerged sort of this common element and respect and admiration for humanity that he demonstrates. How did, how did that all come together? Cause I love the way that he kind of cares and is concerned about others uh, through everything that uh, he does and everything he experiences. Yeah. Uh, Lou declares himself the world's worst Buddha, I believe at some point. And I used to think I was a pretty good Buddhist, you know, uh, before I started driving a cab 70 hour weeks and, you know, just gave into road rage daily, just really embarrassing behavior. You know, it, it just shocked me and was very sobering and yet I couldn't stop it. And I tried to put Lou in that same situation and made him a bad Buddhist as well. And, um, and tried to, you know, in the, same way you might have driving advice that helps people's lives inside a book. You know, the idea of books being medicinal, literature being medicinal has always appealed to me. And, and I thought having a little Buddhist teaching about compassion is not something you're born with. People aren't born good. They're, they have to work at it. At least most of us do. And you work at it through willfulness and mindfulness. And that is what Lou's doing. Uh, he, He's not by nature the you know, sweetest guy, but he's guilt plagued, I think. And I've thought about guilt a lot lately. You know, would there even be decency? Is decency possible without guilt? You know, guilt does serve a purpose. And, and I think Lou is a bit of a perfectionist. He's too hard on himself. He's too hard on his customers, his society, his world. Uh, but he's kind of aware of it and he's trying to improve. And, you know, that's in some ways, it's the effort is almost all we can do. If we, if we change at all, it's pretty minutely in life, I, I suspect. But uh, through mindfulness, you can at least be aware of your faults. And, I th you know, and Lou is a much better guy than he thinks he is. And I think the reader is aware of that. But the New York Times just wrote a review of it, and they seemed to think Lou hated all his customers, and he was kind of just filled with hate for his customers. And I was like, what book did they read? Because Lou is constantly going to bat for his customers and helping them out and constantly feeling guilty for not helping them out more. So as a review, I was just completely baffled by that. Um, there were good things in the review too, <laughs> but, uh, but um, it just made no sense to me because I think if anything, Lou is sympathetic. We can all see ourselves in Lou to some extent. And, um, you know, we all fail at being as kind as we want to be to people. Yeah, very well said. And Lou's a great character, and he certainly is the driving force behind your novel, uh, The Last Taxi Driver. So I had to ask you about uh, the book that's coming out in 2021, your memoir called Stalking Shakespeare, which is going to talk about and chronicle kind of your decades-long obsession with trying to find lost portraits of William Shakespeare. 
why are you looking for lost portraits of William Shakespeare? And what, briefly, without giving too much away, how does that kind of serve as the backbone for your memoir? It's a strange book. Um, I became obsessed two decades ago with Elizabethan portraits, started with Elizabethan portrait miniatures, uh, which were very popular back in the day. And um, that might, got me interested in the painters of the time, which got me interested in the, you know, the larger paintings. And, um, and eventually I be, became fascinated with one particular miniature, which was said to be a, a portrait of William Shakespeare painted from life. There had been a book written arguing that case. And um, from, I just became addicted to it. Uh, I found another book called How to Identify Elizabethan Portrait Miniatures. And apparently this used to be a hobby among the elite, this kind of dilettante effort to try to identify unknown sitters. So I fell down that rabbit hole and began searching for the, um, I wanted to be the first person to find a 400 year old portrait of Shakespeare painted from life. Nobody had ever found a portrait of Shakespeare painted from life. People thought they have, but they've all been eventually debunked and we're always, but now, you know, it's constant. The only thing that changes is there's a new portrait and it's prettier than the last one. So I decided I would research the ugly portraits of Shakespeare that have been neglected and enter that world, which got me interested in the, in the world of um, x-rays and infrared and uh, getting talking curators into, um, into testing, probing their portraits of Shakespeare. Because when you're looking at a 400 year old portrait, you're looking at overpaint. The real portrait is underneath and you can get to those different layers via x-rays and you can even see under portraits that was painted on the top of another portrait. And that's fascinating to me. But with infrared, you can go even deeper and you can see the original carbon lines, the pencil lines, that created the portraits. So you're, you're going backwards to the draft stage almost. And since the Elizabethans were a heavily censored community by their queen, um, censorship of art was everywhere um, and portraits were banned at certain points and it, it, they, were, they were very controversial figures, these portraits were. Uh, very, they were used to promote politics, to promote people, um, to promote generals, to promote marriages. And I wanted to see what had been censored. So, um, but, the, but the, the, the memoir itself is humorous and it's about obsession as much as anything. It's also about Shakespeare, the Elizabethans, but it's also about living in Vermont if, as a Mississippian for, you know, for 18 years and becoming obsessed with these portraits every winter and dealing with seasonal depression and everything that came with that as well. So it's a humorous, funny um, memoir, I hope it's funny, that kind of pre presents me as a carnival barker freak show for the uh, Elizabethans. And um, it's a strange book, but all, everything I write is kind of odd, you might have noticed. So we'll see how this one goes. I'm looking forward to getting back to work on it. I still have to go through a few more drafts on that one. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like a great book. Sounds really interesting and fascinating, and we certainly look forward to that coming out uh, in 2021. So, Lee, in our final moments with you today here on Now Appalachia, if anyone wants to get in contact with you uh, to talk to you about your books, to talk to you about writing, uh, where can they do that? How can they get in contact with you, first of all? And where can they get copies 
uh, of The Last Taxi Driver? Well, copies of The Last Taxi Driver would be available at your local independent bookstore and um, would always prefer, you know, that people buy their, yeah, um, but happy they buy it all, of course, obviously. Um, and in terms of getting hold of me, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, probably the best way is I'm on both of them. You have no choice. That's part of my life now. It's caused me so much stress. Even today, it's caused me, every day it causes me so much stress. But you have to... You have to be on it for your um, your publishers and you have to self-promote or you're letting down all the people who have helped you get this book out. So you have to do it and you do it, even Absolutely. though it makes you miserable. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it is the ultimate catch-22. Social media yes. for writers is the ultimate catch-22. Lee Durkee has been our guest here today on this episode of Now Appalachia. We've been talking to him about his outstanding new novel, The Last Taxi Driver. You need to pick this up and add this to your 2B red list or 2B read soon list because it's a fantastic story uh, based a lot on uh, Lee's experiences as a taxi driver. A lot of that works its way uh, into the story, but it's a fantastic story, a great novel. Uh, Lee, congratulations on the book, and we'd love to have you back on uh, next year when uh, your book, Stalking Shakespeare, comes out. But congratulations on The Last Taxi Driver, and uh, we certainly look forward to uh, talking with you again very soon. Thanks for coming on now, Appalachia. Thanks, Elliot. Thanks for having me. And that's going to do it for this episode of Now Appalachia. We want to take a moment to thank the executive producer of Now Appalachia. Her name is Pam Stack. We appreciate all the work that she does behind the scenes, not only producing our podcast each and every episode, but also making sure that these podcasts get distributed and disseminated to every place that you like to listen to podcasts. We couldn't do it without Pam Stack's help, and we appreciate all that she does uh, to keep things running smoothly behind the scenes here on Now Appalachia. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And until next time, I'm Elliot Parker. Stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next. Stay tuned for more outstanding podcasts from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.